You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll read together chapter 3, verse 5, all the way through chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Then the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Let's pray together. Our Father, we now commit this time that we spend in Your Word to You and to Your Spirit. We pray that Your Spirit would be our teacher, that Your Word would be our guide and our rule, and that Your glory would be our concern. May this time be used to the end of edifying and equipping us and encouraging us and challenging us. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have probably heard it said by a lot of well-meaning, but I would argue ill-informed folks, that the New Testament presents a totally different picture of God than the Old Testament. Have you ever heard that? The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger, and He's this vindictive, a wrath-filled ogre who loves to squash people, and He destroys the world in a flood and wipes out entire cities like Sodom and Gomorrah without notice and kills people on the spot instantly right in their tracks and strikes people with leprosy for the smallest infractions of His sort of capricious will. But then the God of the New Testament is a different God. The God of the New Testament is presented to us as love and peace and grace and loving kindness and mercy. It's the Jesus meek and mild. And the God of the New Testament loves to keep little children on His lap and overlook sin. And Jesus is more interested in all of us getting together and loving each other and hugging each other than He really was in truth. And so the God of the New Testament is a, a loving God because that's what the New Testament is. It's all love, love, love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Those would make good song lyrics, wouldn't they? And so that's the message of the New Testament. The message of the Old Testament is the the wrath and the anger and the justice. But by the time you get to the New Testament, you have this different picture of God. Because God in man's understanding has evolved. And we realize that that wrathful, vindictive God of the Old Testament was not really worthy of our worship. And so we crafted a new God that really understands us better. In the Old Testament, we existed for God. In the New Testament, 
God exists for us. Or so the reasoning goes. It really is a silly notion, and we could dismantle it in a hundred different ways, but let me just give you three, three things that should forever settle this question. First, it should be evident to anybody who reads the Old Testament with even, even a moment's reflection or, or any meditation on it whatsoever, that in the Old Testament, the primary theological quandary and dilemma was not why does God punish sinners so swiftly and severely, but instead the primary question in the Old Testament was why does God not punish sinners more swiftly and more severely? We got it in the Psalm 10 that I read at the beginning. Did you see that? Why are you so far away from punishing the evildoer, Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? They're fat. They're at ease. They die in peace. They're like Hitler. They live an entire life of depravity and they die in the arms of their mistress. And they live a comfortable life. And there seems to be no justice poured out on the earth on the sinner. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do fools rule the nations? Why are the righteous oppressed? And why, God, are you far from the groanings of the righteous and the afflicted? In fact, the whole book of Habakkuk really revolves around that question of God. Habakkuk begins his book. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and you do nothing. You do not save. Why do you not make, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The law is ignored and therefore justice comes out perverted. There is no righteousness and justice is twisted. That's the cry of the Old Testament. What we see in the Old Testament is not a vindictive, violent, wrath-filled, um, a vengeful ogre who tries to squash people. What we do see in the Old Testament is a loving and a gracious God who longs to extend mercy and loving kindness to people who from time to time does step into history to remind us that His mercy cannot be taken for granted and that He is holy and that those who approach Him must regard Him as holy and that He is not to be trifled with. So the, the primary cry of the Old Testament was not why is God so angry and why does God punish sinners so swiftly and so severely, but it's just the opposite. Second, you and I should note that we do observe in the Old Testament a God of mercy and grace and loving kindness. Can you think of a book in the Old Testament, any book, might be off this off the top of your mind, where the mercy and the loving kindness of God, say toward a whole city, is demonstrated? Any book come to mind? Jonah? Do you see the loving kindness and the grace of God in the book of Jonah? How about in chapter 1? Did anybody receive grace and loving kindness and mercy in chapter 1? Yeah, the sailors who got saved, right? They experienced the mercy and the grace and the loving kindness of God. And Jonah in chapter 1, he should have been struck dead on the spot in his tracks for such a scandalous act of disobedience and rebellion. But he wasn't. And then in Jonah chapter 2, did anybody experience grace in Jonah chapter 2? Yeah, Jonah did. Saved from the death by the fish, preserved alive for three days and three nights, spit out up onto the land. How about in chapter 3? Any expressions of grace and mercy and loving kindness in chapter 3? Yeah, most certainly. Jonah gets a second shot at it. He gets a, a second recommission to go to Nineveh again. And then when Jonah goes and he preaches, an entire city repents and then God relents. And that takes us to chapter 3, verse 10. So, the primary theological quandary in the Old Testament is why doesn't God deal with sin more swiftly and more severely? 
In the Old Testament, we see rather a picture of God who is merciful and gracious and and, uh, kind and long-suffering. And then I would point this out. The most severe dealing with sin in all of the Bible is not in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. The greatest expression of the wrath of God is nowhere in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. What is it? It's the cross where God poured out His wrath on His own Son to pay the penalty for the sin of all who would believe on Him. That was the greatest expression of the wrath of God and it wasn't even in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's at the cross. So anybody who says that there are two different gods, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, or that the New Testament presents a, a clearer, more advanced, more evolved understanding of who God is, is really a shallow reader of both the Old and the New Testaments, because that's just simply not the case. So chapter 3, verse 10 of Jonah, we saved that for this morning because it's a, it offers to us a marvelous picture of God, but it does raise a couple of very serious theological concerns. And I told you when we started the book of Jonah that we were not, I was not so much interested in the details of the story, although we've dived into those rather deep, I think. But the theology that is behind it and the issues that come up as a result of going through the book of Jonah. And chapter 3, verse 10 raises a couple of real significant theological challenges that we're going to deal with this morning. But before we do, we want to dive into the text and see what chapter 3, verse 10 says. Look at it in your Bibles. When God saw their deeds... That They turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented. The emphasis in verse 10, as it is in all of chapter 3, is on the deeds of the Ninevites. You saw it emphasized when we looked at the previous verses. The king got up from his throne, took off his robes, put on sackcloth, sat down in ashes. The people called fast, the people were repenting dressing their beast of burden in sackcloth and and fasting and not eating and not drinking and calling out to God earnestly and turning aside from their wickedness. Those are the deeds of repentance. And what is of interest in, in Jonah is not just the heart of repentance, but the outward manifestation of repentance. So that's what Jonah emphasizes. That's why it says when God saw their deeds. Now, did God need to see their deeds in order to know that they had repented? Or is God able to see their hearts and to know that their repentance is genuine? God knows their hearts and He knows that their repentance is genuine. But God, it says that God saw their deeds because the emphasis is on the works of repentance, the the fruit of repentance, as it were. Somebody can be falsely repentant and yet show all the outward signs or manifestations of repentance. They can weep over sin, agonize, whine, cry, say they're sorry, even stop sinning, and yet at the inside have a heart that is still fully set in rebellion and fully turned against God and unsoftened and unhumbled and unrepentant entirely, and yet outwardly show all of the visible fruit of repentance. It is possible to show outward fruit of repentance and not be repentance inside, repentant inside, but listen, it is not possible to be repentant inside and to manifest no fruit of it. You don't say of a man who's living in adultery, yeah, I think he's repentant. Well, hold on a second. He's still pursuing adultery, still living in adultery. Yeah, but I think his heart has changed. I think he's repentant. No, if a man is repentant, he turns from his sin and he stops sinning. That's it. You can't be repentant in your heart and have a heart that is rent and humbled 
but yet not express that outwardly in some way. And the Ninevites, the repentance of their heart was expressed very, very much outwardly. John the Baptist said in, in Matthew chapter 3, when preaching to the crowds, he told them to repent. And then he said, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you have to turn from your sin, and then you need to manifest the deeds that are in keeping with repentance. Paul, after preaching to the king, King Agrippa, in Acts chapter 26, Paul said, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring to men everywhere, both at Damascus first and at Jerusalem, through all the regions of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. How do you know if somebody is inwardly, genuinely repentant? Well, one thing is that they outwardly manifest it. How did Jonah know that Nineveh had repented? Because they had outwardly manifested it. They turned from their wicked way, they turned from their sin, and they turned to God. And Jonah was able to see that Nineveh repented. God didn't need to see their deeds But he did see their deeds, and of course he saw their hearts and knew that they had repented. And then it says that having turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God relented. Now, if you have the King James translation, you will notice that it says God what? Repented. Now, some of you couldn't answer that because you didn't have the King James. I was waiting for somebody who had the King James to answer that question. It says that God repented and turned from the evil. He repented of the evil that he would bring upon them. The New King James has relented, NASB has relented, NIV has that God had compassion and he did not bring upon them the disaster that he said he would. And let me ask you the question, does God change his mind or relent? Does God repent? And in what way does God relent? And what does it mean for God to relent? A relent is a better translation than repent for this reason. It is not proper, it's not theologically accurate, and it's not even close to right to speak of God repenting, because it seems to communicate that God repented of something in the same way that the Ninevites repented of something. What does repent mean? Repent means to turn from a wicked course to a righteous course. It means to turn around from doing something that is evil or wrong or sinful or wicked, and to turn and to do instead something that is right or good or proper. Can God ever repent? No, because it would not have been wicked for him to destroy Nineveh. It would have been right. It would have been just. It would have been holy. It would have been righteous for God to do that. All of his judgments are right, and it would have been completely in keeping with his nature to punish evildoers for their evil. So it's not that God repented and turned from a wicked course to a better course. Rather, he relented. Two different words that are used between verses 8 and 10, two different words are used of both Nineveh and God. When it speaks of Nineveh turning, it's the Hebrew word sub, or sub. And it simply means to turn from one path of wickedness to a path of righteousness, or to change your path from one of doing evil to not doing that evil anymore. That's to repent. But when it speaks of God relenting, it uses a different Hebrew word, which means something different. Necham. And you've got to say the ch, because it's Hebrew. So you have to get that in there. It's Naham. And it's a totally different word. It has nothing to do with turning from evil to righteousness. It has to do with changing one course of action to another course of action. And the two courses of action don't say anything about whether one is right and wrong or the other is right and wrong, but just simply to, to change direction or to change what you are doing. Now, of course, this raises two 
theological questions. And some of you can already see them coming. Number one, and this is a little bit easier to deal with, so we'll deal with this first. Number one, was Jonah a true prophet or a false prophet? Because Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But was Nineveh overthrown? It wasn't. So did Jonah's prophecy come to pass? No, it didn't. So does that make him a true prophet or does that make Jonah a false prophet? The second question is a bit more difficult and that is, Does God ever change His mind? Does God ever pursue a course and then encounter information or something that alters His course or makes Him change His mind and decide to do something other than what He was going to do? Let's deal with the first one first. That's a good order, isn't it? Always deal with the first one first. Was this a false prophecy? Because Jonah said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, yet it wasn't overthrown. So does that make Jonah a false prophet? Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and ask yourself, what was the test between a true prophet prophet and a false prophet? How could I know if when a prophet spoke, if he was a true prophet of God or if he was a false prophet of God? Would, Would there have been some credentials? Well, the answer to that is yes. One of the many credentials that you could look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Where the Lord says, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How will we know if God has not spoken by the mouth of a man who claims to speak from God? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, then that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And the penalty for being a false prophet in the Old Testament was death. They were stoned. The prophet couldn't get away with a 50% accuracy rating or a 90% or even a 99. It had to be 100% spot on. Everything he said had to come to pass just as he... And there was no spinning it afterwards. Well, I didn't quite sort of misspoke. I really meant this. And if you take that word and you sort of... And you get over here and this is what I really meant. There was no no ability to do that afterwards. You couldn't do that. If you weren't 100% spot on, they stoned you. I was talking with some Jehovah's Witnesses one time. And I pointed out to them that their organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, has predicted the return of Christ over a dozen different times in the last 150 years. And they've predicted dozens of other things that have never come to pass, all the time claiming to speak from God as God's voice, as God's mouthpiece, as his prophet for this time period. And so I was reading them from their own literature, some of the things that their Watchtower Bible and Tract Society has said, pointing out to them the false prophecies. And one of the Jehovah's Witnesses said to me, oh, and I showed them from the Old Testament, where the prophets should be stoned or killed if they got it wrong and so one of the jehovah's witnesses said to me let me ask you a question do you think jonah was a true prophet or a false prophet i said a true prophet well did you know that jonah uttered a false prophecy i said really of course i knew where he was going because i was prepared for him to go there so he took me back to jonah chapter three and he said here in verse four it says yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown did that come to pass and i said no it didn't jonah was a false prophet so you can be a bona fide true prophet of god and say false things, wrong things, and get it wrong. Misspeak, or even make mistakes and get it wrong. So Jonah just made a mistake. And our organization has made a mistake. There's dozens of mistakes. But I mean, that's, that's apart from the real issue of whether Jonah was a false prophet or not. So how do you answer that? Is Jonah a false prophet? Do you remember back when we looked at chapter 3, verse 4? I told you, those words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was not the sum total of everything Jonah said. He didn't just crack the gates to the city 
and shout in, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, shut the door and turn around and walk out. The text indicates that Jonah was in, went into the city a day's journey and that this was the summation, not the sum total, but this was a summary of what he was proclaiming. Jonah was proclaiming that because of their sin, Nineveh would be overthrown. They would be judged by the God of Israel unless they turned and repented and turned to him. And so much information did Jonah give that when the king heard of Jonah, the king knew which God he needed to turn to, which sin Nineveh was going to be judged for, and what they needed to do to avoid the wrath of Jonah's God. I think that Jonah was inside the city from place to place in different venues, open-air preaching and speaking to different people in the marketplace, probably over the course of most of those 40 days, declaring to them that Nineveh would be overthrown. So, Verse 4 only represents basically the gist of Jonah's message. But here's the second thing you need to keep in mind. In the Old Testament, with the prophets, all of God's threatenings were conditioned. They were conditional. And they were all conditioned on repentance. Implied in the threatening itself is the, is the opposite side of the threat. If you continue in this, I will destroy you. Implied in that is if I don't continue in this, He won't destroy me. That's exactly how Jonah understood it. Chapter 4, verse 2. Lord, was this not what I said to you when we were back in my own country? I said you're a God who's compassionate and gracious and will relent from doing harm if the Ninevites repent. Jonah knew what kind of a God God was. Jonah knew that implied in the threatening was the opposite side of the threat, that if they didn't continue in their sin, that God would relent. And that was the unstated but always assumed condition of all threatenings in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 17, sorry, 18, verses 7 and 8. At one moment, I may speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. And if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I said to bring upon it. That was the general principle of all Old Testament threatening prophets. If I speak concerning a nation, whatever it may be, And I say, I'm going to destroy that nation. If that nation turns and relents, then I will not destroy it. I will relent, or if that nation repents, then I will relent to the disaster that I was going to bring upon it. I stated all the way through the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel chapter 33, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. Now listen to the heart of God in this prophet. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin, when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and so he trusts in his righteousness, and he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he has committed, he will die. Now stop there just for a second. A righteous man who has pursued his righteousness or his, uh, his righteousness or God's righteousness all of his life, and then he decides, I'm going to dive off into idolatry. God says, I'm going to judge him for his idolatry. I'm not going to take into account all of the good deeds that he's done. He's going to pay for his sin. And he can't look back and say, but I followed you all of these years. God says the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. Back to Ezekiel 33. 
But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he will live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he's committed will be remembered against him. He's practiced justice and righteousness. He shall surely live. So if the Lord says to the wicked, I'm going to destroy you, and the wicked turns, God says, I won't destroy them. So all of the threatenings in the Old Testament were conditioned upon repentance. If you continue here, I will destroy you. The unspoken assumption is, if you do not, I will relent. And that's the nature of God. God is always gracious and willing to forgive the penitent sinner all the way up to the very end. So was it a false prophecy? No, because Jonah said other things other than just what's in verse 4. And besides that, God's purpose, his intention always was to deliver or to save those who would repent. And that was Jonah's message. He preached a message of repentance and turning from sin to avoid the wrath of God. Now, what about the second theological issue? And that is, did God change his mind? It says that he relented. We talked about this a little bit today in adult Sunday school class, and Jess promised that I would be able to explain this better than he did, and I don't know if that's going to be true or not, but I'm going to give it a shot. Did God change his mind, and does God ever change his mind? The answer to that is, no, God never changes his mind. Now, let me flesh this out and explain it. The preponderance, the overwhelming majority of passages in the Scripture say that God does not change. Let me give you some examples. James 1.17, every good gift and every good thing comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He does not vary. There is no variation in the works of God, in the nature of God, in the character of God, in the plan of God. He is utterly immutable, unable to change, and He does not change. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for God cannot deny Himself. For God to say, I'm going to do this, and then to say, no, I'm just kidding, I'm going to do this. I didn't mean I was going to do that, I meant this all along. For God to do that would be to deny Himself. That would be for God to say, I thought this was good, but I was wrong. Now I'm going to do this. Or as if God is to start down a path toward one goal and then to be altered by some information or some act of man which would make him pursue a better goal. That would be for God to deny himself. And God cannot deny himself. Luke, uh, Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I what? I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. God does not repent. Has he not said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? God's not like you and I. He doesn't change courses. He doesn't jump horses midstream. He doesn't decide one thing and then get new information and then decide this would be better. God doesn't change. 1 Samuel 15:29 Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Did you hear the last verse? God is not a man that he should change his mind. So does God change his mind? The answer to that is no. Ezekiel 30, uh, sorry, Exodus 32:14. I want you to remember the answer to your question, no. Exodus chapter 32, with Moses up on the mountain, 
and the children of Israel at the base of the mountain, committing idolatry and fornication and immorality and drunkenness of every kind, the Lord said to Moses, you go down to the people that you have led out of Egypt because they are defiling themselves. And leave me alone in my wrath. I am going to destroy them. And Moses begins to plead for the nation of Israel. Remember your people. Remember your covenant. Remember your promise, Lord. Exodus 32, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. See, just when I thought you had the answer down, then we read a verse like that, right? Exodus 32, 14. The Lord changed his mind about the harm. But didn't we just read 1 Samuel 15, which said, The Lord is not a man that he should change his mind. The glory of Israel will not change his mind. Didn't we just read that? What do we do with Exodus 32, 14? It only gets worse. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 13. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune he's pronounced concerning you. Jeremiah 26, verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we're committing a great evil against ourselves. So now what do we do? We have these verses which say in, with an, in an overwhelming number from every conceivable angle that God is not a man. He does not change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't alter his plan or his nature or his course or anything. And then we have a handful, just a few, three of them that I read to you, which seem to suggest that in some way, after some fashion, God does change his mind. So what do we do when we come up with verses like this? Does God change his mind or does God not change his mind? Let me offer you... Four lines of argument. Now, take some thought, and it, it's going to require that you sort of think through some things. It's not impossible to deal with this, but it is a challenge, and it, it is kind of fun. At least I enjoy teaching on difficult things. I don't know why. I think it's a disease, but I do enjoy it. The principle that we all always follow is that we always take the unclear verses, and we interpret or understand them in light of the clear. What are the clear verses? It is the hundreds of verses which speak of God's unchanging, immutable, eternal nature that never changes. And His ways are perfect. And God does not change His mind. Those are the clear verses. Then we run across a few verses that speak of God changing His mind. How are we to understand that? Well, we understand the unclear in light of the clear. So we go back and we say God does not change His mind. So what then do we do with verses like Jonah 3.10 and some of the others which seem to suggest that God changes his mind, or changes his actions. The simple answer to it is that verses like Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, are what we call figures of speech. And there's a, there's a very long, technical, theological word for this. It's called an anthropopathism. Now, some of you thought I was going to say anthropomorphism. And others of you are saying anthropomorphism. What is an anthropomorphism and what is an anthropopathism? You're probably more familiar with the term anthropomorphism. Anthro meaning man, morphism from morphe meaning form or shape. That is a man's shape or a man's form. And an anthropomorphism is when we, as it uses a figure of speech, a human physical form or characteristic, and we attach it to something that is not human, to something that transcends human characteristics, in order to give us a glimpse into what is going on. Now, it's not that the figure of speech doesn't mean anything. We can't just say, well, it's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean anything. It does communicate something to us. But an anthropomorphism is when we take the form of a man and we ascribe it to something that transcends that 
and we use human language in order to describe something that really is beyond a description. You see them in Scripture all the time. The face of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord, the nostrils of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. Those are all anthropomorphisms. Now, we understand that God doesn't have arms and legs and nostrils and a face and a mouth and ears and those things. But we use a human figure of language like the arm of the Lord to speak of something that transcends that, which is God's omnipotent, almighty power. You speak of the arm of the Lord, you mean His power, His might, His ability to deliver and to move on behalf of His people. It communicates something powerful to us. That's what an anthropomorphism is. But you said this is an anthropopathism. What's an anthropopathism? Anthro from man, pathism from pathos, meaning emotion or feeling. And it's the same type of thing. It's where we take a human feeling, a human thinking, a human emotion, and we attribute it to something that really transcends the human emotion or feeling in order to give us a glimpse into what was going on inside the heart and the mind of God. That's an anthropopathism. And you see these all the time in Scripture as well. And anthropopathism simply describes in human emotion something of what was going on inside the heart and the mind of God, which really we cannot describe. But it does put it into human language. It's almost as if God, by the Spirit of God, stoops down to speak to us in words that you and I can relate to and understand so that we can get a glimpse of something which is far beyond human understanding or human articulation or language at all. Let me give you some examples of anthropopathisms in Scripture. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord remembered Noah and the animals on board the ark. The Lord remembered Noah? Did the Lord forget? Oh, Noah, the boat, I forgot all about it. Now, where are they? Is that what you picture? No, that's not what is meant by the Lord remembered Noah. How about Genesis 18 where God says, I'm going to go down into Sodom and Gomorrah and I'm going to see if what is going on there really is according to the cry that's come up against that city to me. Did God not know? He had to go check it out for himself. Is that really what we say about God? How about 1 Samuel chapter 15? God said, I regret that I've made Saul king. How does God regret that he made Saul king? Did God get to a point where he said, you know what? If I could do it all over again, I I didn't see this coming. I would do something entirely different. Those are anthropopathisms. They are describing in human language with the limits of human understanding something of what is going on inside the being and the mind and the heart of God. It gives us a glimpse. Did God remember Noah? No, it it doesn't mean that he forgot. It just simply means that God thought that he contemplated on, that his heart was set on Noah. God's affection was there. He remembered him in the sense that with everything else going on, God was right there with that ark and those people and those animals. He remembered him in that sense. It doesn't mean that God didn't know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in human speaking, God was saying, I'm seeing whether what is done there really is as bad as what is being told to me. It kind of gives us a glimpse into the divine understanding and nature and mind. And it's not that God regretted in the sense that you and I regret, because even though it says at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 15, I've regretted that I've made Saul king, it's later on that Samuel says, the glory of Israel does not change and will not change his mind. Because Saul, when Samuel told him 
Look, God is going to remove the kingdom from you and give it to one who's more worthy of it than you. Saul said, no, 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 please don't. And Samuel said, the Lord is not going to change his mind. He's not like you. He doesn't change his mind. And then right after it, the Lord says, I've regretted that I've made Saul king. So there in one chapter, in one instance, you have both of these things being said. The Lord does not change his mind. But in an anthropopathic way, the author says, God did enter into and did grieve over those circumstances. Now, if God could go back and do it over again, would he do it over again? He would have done it exactly the way he did it the first time. So chapter 3, verse 10 of Jonah is simply an anthropopathism. What was God's intention all along? To destroy Nineveh or to save Nineveh? His intention all along was to save Nineveh, not destroy it. If God wanted to destroy Nineveh, he would have done what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, just wipe them out without sending a prophet or a warning or anything. But his intention all along was to save Nineveh. And the Lord knew what he had to do to get Nineveh to repent. Send a prophet into the city to preach the word. And so he took Jonah and he sent him into the city to preach the word. And then he worked a work of grace through his spirit and through the word. The people repented and they changed so that God could save them. Was God's intention all along to destroy Nineveh or to save Nineveh? His intention all along was to save Nineveh. And one of the means that he used was threatening Nineveh concerning their sin and the judgment that would inevitably come because of their sin. Now, if Nineveh had never repented, would God have spared them or destroyed them? He would have destroyed them, but they repented. Nineveh changed. Did God change? Who changed in chapter 3? Nineveh or God? Nineveh changed. And that is the key. It is not that God changed His mind. It's that Nineveh changed in their relationship to this God. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the Creation Museum, and one of the things that I got to do there was to visit the planetarium. And so we got to lean back in these nice comfy chairs where you almost fall asleep before the movie starts in the big dome over your head. And they projected the movie up there, and the video that they showed really was a, a, a quick tour of the entire galaxy. And so they sort of panned out from the Earth, and you got to see the satellite view of what Earth looks like from a satellite and then what Earth looks like from the moon. And then they started talking about the different planets, and so you could kind of go out to each planet. They... The CGI, the computer-generated graphics, was just incredible in this. You have to tour our whole solar system. And then after that, they went out to the nearest star to us, which is Alpha Centauri. And they showed from Earth's perspective what our constellations look like. All the stars, the map of the heavens as we see them. And they pointed out all the different stars in the constellations and drew the lines so that you could kind of see them. And they labeled them up on the screen. You thought, wow, that was cool. It's like I'm seeing the, the whole universe of stars right over my head, all the constellations. Then they took us out to Alpha Centauri, which is the nearest star to our star, the sun. They took us all the way out to there, and then looking back toward Earth, there's this little faint dot on the map. They pointed out and said, that's our sun from Alpha Centauri. And then they said, here's what the constellations look like. And guess what? The constellations had all changed. They all looked different. Now, what had changed? The constellations? Constellations hadn't changed. All the stars stayed in the same place. What changed? My vantage point changed. I went from looking at the constellations on Earth to looking at the constellations from Alpha Centauri. And they all look different. And it would be completely proper from a human perspective to say, all the constellations have changed. In fact, that was one of the first things that popped into my mind. But it wasn't the constellations that had changed. My vantage point had changed. It was the same with Nineveh. God said to Nineveh, if you continue in this, I will destroy you. If you do this, I will spare you. Nineveh went from this to this. Who changed? Nineveh changed. 
It's the same God with the same nature and the same intention. His intention and his way of, of dealing with Nineveh was the same. If you sin, I will destroy you. If you repent, I will spare you. They went from sinning to repenting. So they went from seeing a God who was angry and righteous and holy and going to pour out his wrath on them as a city for their sin. They went from seeing that manifestation of God to seeing instead a God who was righteous and yet loving and merciful and kind and willing to extend grace. Whose vantage point changed? It's the same God dealing with the same city in the same way. What changed was Nineveh. Nineveh went from relating to God in his anger and his wrath to relating to God in his mercy and his grace. And from their vantage point, they would say, oh, the Lord changed his mind. But who really changed? It was Nineveh. I think that's sufficient to answer sort of the the question of whether God changes his mind or doesn't change. And, And now, as far as whether God changes his mind in response to our prayers or not, I'll let you flesh that out and you can ask Jess and he will answer that question. The answer to it is the answer to that very quickly, I think, is no. God doesn't change his mind in response to our prayers. What we do is in praying, we see a God who is already going to accomplish exactly what he's going to accomplish. And he invites us to participate with him in accomplishing that by praying so that we might see his hand move. But God doesn't change his mind. Okay, you convinced me. You see that in the Old Testament as if God is going to do one thing and somebody prays and all of a sudden God does something else and you wonder, did that prayer change the mind of God? The answer is no. God intended all along to do this, but what he wanted was this person to ask for this. And so God was doing what he had to do to accomplish what he had to accomplish, knowing that he was going to use the prayer of that person to accomplish that. From the human perspective, it appears to us as if God has changed his mind. But from the divine perspective, he hasn't. Let's say we were asked today, Lord, grant us a million dollars to build our new facility. Would you send that to us? And we pray that over the course of several weeks, and then God answers it. And he gives us a million dollars to build our new facility. Did we change his mind? No. He said, but if he was going to do it anyway, did we really have to ask him to do it? And the answer is yes. He wants us to move from one path of not requesting into the path of requesting so that when he does it, we see God from the vantage point that he wants us to see him. That's why we pray. Now, that was probably a little bit more theological and philosophical and and rambling than many of you had wanted, but you will have to admit you're no worse for wear as a result of it. So what do we pull away from Jonah chapter 3, the whole chapter? I think that the primary lesson that you and I learn from Jonah chapter 3 is this. It is the efficacy of repentance. The efficacy of repentance. God is a just God, he is a holy God, and he must punish sinners. And he will punish sinners. And everybody sitting here has sinned against that holy God. And we all have to stand before that holy God on Judgment Day. And his moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments demonstrates to us exactly how we have sinned. You have lied, you have stolen, you have cheated, you have blasphemed his name, you have hated your brother, you have lusted in your heart, you have not kept the Sabbath, you have not honored God as the way that he is intended to be honored and should be honored. We have all violated all of those commandments. And because we have violated those commandments, we deserve the same wrath that Nineveh would have gotten. But the good news is that God is rich in mercy, and He's kind, and He loves, and He does not delight in the death of the wicked. And He holds out to every person here always the promise that if you will repent, turn from your sin, and trust in the Savior, He will not destroy you. 
He will forgive your sin and he will give you eternal and everlasting life. And you'll enter into a relationship with him, not as somebody who is facing his wrath, condemned and ready for judgment, but as somebody who is his child whose sins have been forgiven. The greatest the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God was on the cross of Calvary when he poured out all of his wrath against sin on his own son so that God could be both loving and just. He could love us and punish sin at the same time so we could have our sin punished on his son and we get the righteousness that his son earned and had on our behalf so that we can be made righteous in Christ. That's the gospel. And Jonah chapter 3 demonstrates to us that it is the same God in the New Testament that it was in the Old Testament. He is rich in mercy, rich in grace, loving and kind, and he does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he will spare the penitent sinner. If you turn, he will forgive. Always, always forgive. I know I will stand on judgment day, righteous in his sight, because my sins have been forgiven. Why? Because I have his promise that when we turn from our sin, he will forgive and he will grant eternal life. And I hope that God does that work in somebody's heart here this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that even in the presence of difficult texts that you are able to give us understanding. We do thank you, God, that your word is clear, that it is able for us to, that we are able to understand it by your spirit. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to see a whole new facet of who you are, your grace and your loving kindness, and help us to see how good you are, how kind you are, and willing to forgive sinners. We ask, O oh God, that today in our hearts you would do a work of grace in reminding us again that your Son bore our sin in his own body on the tree. And Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ and has never trusted in him and turned from their sin, may you grant that faith and grant that repentance so that they might turn from sin and find you to be a gracious and loving God. Thank you that you are just. Thank you that you are holy. And thank you that you will not punish us for our sin since you have laid it on Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.